speak to you. I have ordained you a prophet to the nations. I have chosen you out of the world. You did not choose me. I chose you. I have given you all authority and power. You shall receive my power and be my witness. You shall be strong and do great exploits. You shall be bold. You shall be fearless. You shall stand in my name. You shall be... a new series here at Vertical called Dauntless. I'm excited for what God has for us over the next nine weeks as we look at stories from the book of Daniel. But first, let me say this. Today is a very special day in our family because it is Heather's birthday. Ta-da-da. Yeah. And I know because she looks it, she really is just 20 today. So no, she's uh, perpetually young and getting younger. It's the strangest thing. So often I'm asked, hey, who are those six kids you have? So... Wow, thank you. So I'm grateful for her today. Hey, we're excited uh, that you're here. We're also excited for those who are watching online today. So uh, there's a whole host of folks who are watching us this morning all across the United States, some even in Montana this morning. There's a group there this morning. So hello, folks in Montana. We're glad you are joining us. In fact, I, uh, I talked with them recently, and they're going to be joining us online for our upcoming parenting uh, conference on Sunday nights, and they have 14 couples are going to be watching and joining us in our discussion on Sunday nights there from Montana, so we're excited about that. Yeah, let's give them a hand. It's awesome. The true story is told from the year 320 A.D. A group of soldiers who were Christians, part of a group of soldiers that were not. They, as a group, were required to offer sacrifices to the idols in their day by Caesar's command. These soldiers said, we cannot offer these sacrifices. To do so is to betray our Lord and our most holy faith. The governor said, you will bow you will offer sacrifices. You have no Lord but Caesar. And in fact, I will give a promotion to the one of you who will step forward and begin and say, I will offer the sacrifice. These 40 men said, we cannot do it. We cannot betray our Lord. The governor said, well then, if that's the case, guards prepare for them torture and death. And they said in return, nothing you could offer, nothing you could threaten would stop us from losing our place in the next world, would cause us from giving up what we believe is true in this world. We have learned to deny our bodies when our souls are at stake. The governor ordered them to be flogged, to be beaten within inches of their life. As they did, as their backs were bruised, beaten, and bloodied. Not one of the 40 believers bowed. They all continued in their insistence of worshiping Jesus alone. The governor, not knowing what to do, called in his superior, 
He brought in a judge who could make a final decree about their life, and the judge came in with great sternness and said, I will make them obey, or there will be an even sharper penalty. The men refused again. The judge pointed and said, take them down to the frozen pond, strip them of their clothes, and they will stand there until they are ready to offer sacrifices to our gods. In surprise, they turned to look at these 40 soldiers who began themselves removing their clothes and ran down to the frozen pond and took their position there with a bold declaration and a song in their mouth. 40 soldiers for Christ are we. And there they stood while this governor, judge, and all of their soldiers stood in amazement. Why would these men take this kind of stance? The judge said, bring some hot baths down and set them out in front of them. Surely this will entice them. Surely this will cause them to break. Surely they'll end this charade. The hot baths were set out just feet away. In what would be sure delight from the frozen temperatures, all they had to do was give up their allegiance to Jesus Christ. With the bath just feet away, they continued to sing and refused to yield. Finally, one of the governor's soldiers looked in the night at these 40 men and said, look, do you, do you see that? Do you see what's over them? It looks like, looks like glowing angels above each of them, offering them a robe. And the other soldiers said, you're crazy. What are you talking about? It's night. He said, I see it nonetheless. As he saw that, one of the soldiers stumbled forward as though he was making his way to the bath. Before he could get there, he collapsed. The soldiers ran over to pick him up and to assist him, but it was too late. He had died. Now there stood 39 soldiers. Their prayer for one another had been that there would be 40 soldiers who would stand firm in their commitment to Christ. In a surprise moment, one of the governor's soldiers began to take his armor off took his coat off, stripped himself of his clothes, and joined the 39 and became the 40th soldier. And they continued to stand. They continued to sing until the night was over. When morning had come, all 40 had perished. The 40 were diligent in their faith to worship only Jesus Christ. The governor and judge could only shake their head in disbelief and say, Christians, I don't understand them. We live in a unique day and time, a time in which the church today is facing a pressure that it hasn't faced in a couple of generations. Oh, I realize we haven't always 
had this place of prominence in the culture, but today is different. I'm sure you sense it if you've been alive for some time. There's a reaction. There's a resistance that's different. There's a pushback that's different today. The voice of believers is being silenced across the land. We have been pushed out of the schools. We've been pushed out and are being pushed out of government. Voices being silenced in the marketplace. The name of Christ is being silenced. And the church today is faced with something it has not had to deal with in quite some time. That level of reaction and resistance. And boy, is it tempting to in that moment when there is such reaction and persecution, how tempting it is to back up into your own home, close the door, and not get involved. How tempting it is to go ahead and give in to the silence and choose to not speak because it could cost you your social position. It could cost you your job. It could cost you some income. It could cost you some comfort. And in this day and time, my friends, it is not time to back up. It is not time to retreat. It is time to stand firm in the faith in Jesus Christ and be bold and truly be dauntless. Amen. This, amen. This is our time. It is by God's direction that we study the book of Daniel and learn what it means in this day, in this time, to have a faith that truly is bold and courageous. Dauntless may be a, a new word to you, but I'm sure you've heard of a, a task that is daunting that is filled with uncertainty, that is filled with maybe some danger. It's the same word we get the word dauntless from. It's a person who is willing to face whatever is in front of them, whatever reaction, whatever persecution, whatever the giant, and say, I will believe my God over what I see in this moment. So my prayer is over the next nine weeks that we will become families, Leaders and a church who will stand to a level of faith and confidence that we've never stood before. That we will set aside struggles and temptations and sins that have kept us back and we will be wholly committed to Jesus Christ. That we would have the same kind of faith that would cause 40 soldiers to stand against the elements, to stand against persecution, to stand against all odds and trust God over all things. Amen. 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 A truth from Scripture that drives where we're headed in this series is this. It comes from 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In a day and time in which there is persecution, reaction, wickedness, ungodliness, perversions, and all matter of sin in the world. It is at that time that the eyes of the Lord are searching. They're searching to and fro, backwards and forwards, around the globe, across our nation, across 
this church this morning looking for those whose heart will be fully loyal to Christ alone. And when he finds that one, that many, he will, as this promise says, show himself strong on their behalf. In other words, God is looking to show himself mighty today. God is looking to glorify himself. He is looking to show his absolute holiness and righteousness and majesty to our nation. And the way he does it is through heart that is surrendered to him. And so it begins here today. We begin the book of Daniel today. If you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along, please do so. Find the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible app, you can follow along. You can follow me on screen. You're welcome to take pictures of the screen as we make our journey through the book of Daniel, beginning today with chapter 1. Let me give you a little bit of context and setting. We are 650 years in our passage from the time that the children of Israel had entered the promised land. 650 years from the time they entered into what God had provided for them. It had taken them a long time to get there, but they entered into the promised land finally. They finally were experiencing all that God had given them, blessings beyond blessings. They're in it, and 650 years later, they have sunk to such a moral low that they cannot even maintain the blessings of God in their life anymore. Let me read a passage before we get to this list here on screen. From Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah writes about this same time. Isaiah writes about this same issue. Isaiah is going to write about the wickedness that had overtaken the people. And here is what Isaiah has to say. Make a note of this, chapter 1, verse 2. Isaiah writes, speaking the Spirit of God. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, you sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward, and why should you not then be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole earth faints. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed up or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land. And your presence is desolate and overthrown with strangers. Isaiah says... You've become a people obsessed with yourself, obsessed with your sin. You've turned away from single-hearted devotion. You have let sin creep in, and you've tried to walk both sides of the aisle. You've tried to ride the fence. You've tried to live religious, and you've tried to maintain your sin, and you've gotten to a place that's despicable. It's gross to the Lord. He says, and because of that, you're facing discipline. You have awakened the justice of God. God's own people have forgotten him. And when they forget, a nation relinquishes the blessing. We live in a time in our day in which we as a nation 
have walked away from the Lord. Oh, I know you would say, well, I haven't. I recognize that. But our nation as a whole has. And when you're in a nation that has, you'll face part of the consequences that come upon that nation. And it's happening in our land today. It's no wonder that there's confusion and dissension and problems and conflict. It's no wonder that crime is where it is. It's no wonder that the perversion is where it is. It's not necessarily their fault as much as it is the church's fault for not being single-heartedly sold out to Jesus Christ. It's painful stuff to hear, but I'm telling you, it's truth from Scripture. When the church is not sold out in full abandoned commitment, when the church is not living purposeful, holy, worship-filled lives, then those around will bear the weight of the anger of God himself. And such is our land today. So how providential that we would study the book of Daniel at this time. You see, what we're going to see as we go through the book of Daniel is that God is in the process of bringing his people through a time of discipline. Discipline. You know it as a parent, right? When your children obey, when they forget your ways, when they walk against you, you apply discipline. And the scripture says that God does that for his people. He lovingly disciplines them. I want to show you a pattern that is consistent throughout scripture, especially the Old Testament, when God is in the process of disciplining especially a nation. You'll see it in the book of Daniel, and you're going to see even how it applies to us today. Look at this list here on the screen. When there's a time of discipline, it begins with God warning his people of coming discipline. He'll warn them. He'll call them out. He'll speak to them. His word will come to them. Hopefully, his people would hear and repent and turn. Yet if they do not, the second thing happened. God disciplines through captivity from another nation. It happened over and over again in the Old Testament. When God's people refused to obey, they as a nation were eventually taken captive by another nation. Someone else came in and took over. Someone else came in and made them slaves. When you have relinquished yourself and not following Christ, you end up becoming someone else's slave. In our land today, it may not be slavery to another nation yet, but it is slavery to sin in all forms now. We live with a people today who are bound up and enslaved, addicted to sin. We're attempting to medicate it, classify it, organize it, and God just says it's sin. It's what it is. And if you consist or persist in it, if our nation doesn't repent of it, there'll be a day when we, the United States of America, will no longer be the United States of America. We will be some states of someone else because we will have weakened ourselves to the point that God will bring ultimate discipline from another nation coming in and taking over. It's a truth throughout Scripture. He will bring captivity from another nation. And in the midst of it, God will love his people. You'll think you're being rejected. You'll think he has left you, but it is not. He is only using his hand to discipline. He'll love his people through it, and in the midst of it, God will raise up people with bold faith. 
in the midst of the discipline, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the sin, God will begin to raise up new leaders, new men and women who will say, God, I will trust you. Though all else walk away, I will follow you. Though it cost me everything, I will trust you. Though it cost me my life and standing on a frozen pond, I will trust you. And then God will watch for a heart of humility to return to a nation. He'll use those who are surrendered to begin the work. And he'll watch for the nation to break, to humble themselves. And when they do, God will remove the rod of discipline and he'll break it. You watch the stories of nations throughout Scripture that God used to bring into be the captor. When God was finished and done the work of his people of humbling them, bringing them back to himself, he'll take that nation and break them and remove them. Because God will do what he must to bring his people to where he wants them to be. The final thing is God will restore and heal his people. It's a pattern. It's a pattern throughout Scripture. It's a pattern still in place today. It's a pattern that God uses on a national level. And if we had time to discuss it, we'd talk about how it applies on a personal level because God does this stuff right here in our life too. Amen. Amen. Let's move on to the passage. Well, there's a lot of stuff just right there alone. But let's begin Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 in the very beginning. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. A lot of names that we don't use every day here. Let's break it down a little bit. Judah is part of the people of God. They're divided into two kingdoms right now. They're at odds with one another. Judah is one of those kingdoms. And the leader of that kingdom is Jehoiakim, it says. He's the king of Judah. A little bit of study of scripture reveals that Jehoiakim was not such a great guy. He walked in the ways of the world. He followed after other gods. He was an evil man. An evil man leading the kingdom of God's people. We get a little insight into why God's having to bring some discipline. And what God uses here is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, cruel, heartless man. Military leader set on absolute domination of the world. Babylon, a wicked people who archaeologists tell us today that in Babylon there were 50 different temples to 50 different gods and it was demanded of the people required of the people that they bring sacrifices to these gods this was not 50 denominations of churches this was 50 idol temples where people were required to go and bring offerings to worship the gods because the gods were angry. The gods controlled life. And if you did not worship to the gods, they would make matters bad for you. The principal god of them all was a god called Marduk. He was the god of the 50. He was the god of 50 gods. And all were required to bow down to him. And so here in this verse when it says, 
that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He came up against God's city. He came up against God's people. It was a move orchestrated by God himself. Let me make a point, and then we're going to follow the scripture a little bit further. Here's our first big point for the morning. No power rises against the child of God apart from the loving, loving and sovereign hand of God. If you belong to Jesus Christ, put your faith in him, there is nothing that can rise up against you unless God himself has not given permission for it to do so. So this morning, in our passage, as great as Nebuchadnezzar was, as powerful as Babylon was, They would have no ability to come up against God's people unless God were to say, the door is open. Unless God would have allowed it. Look at the next verse, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who did? The Lord. God allowed the time of discipline. God allowed Jehoiakim and Judah to be defeated. The Lord gave them into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar. But it gets worse. With some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, another word for Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Here you have the most holy place. You have the temple with all that is set up in it, designed by God, elements within it designed to only be used for the worship of holy God. The place where sacrifices were offered, the place where worship occurred. And Nebuchadnezzar marches right in, besieges the city, and he steals from the temple the very articles that were meant to be holy to the Lord. And he takes them back to his city, and he puts them in the temple of his God. He mixes what is most holy with what is most profane. It's a dark tragic day. It would be the equivalent if some military force came into the United States and their center of focus became churches. That they might take them over. That they might remove any element of worship and in its place put whatever disgusting, perverse thing they wanted. Because the thought in that day was, if you could invade a people's worship center, if you could take what was most holy, what was symbolic of their God, if you could steal that, then you truly had power over them. You could take back to your people and say, look what we have here. We have the elements of their temple Where is their God? He is nothing compared to me, Nebuchadnezzar could say. It is a dark day 
It's a day in which their culture has been erased for all practical purposes. It's a day in which their heritage has been destroyed. It's a day that would appear to be the end. The burial of all that they had held to. The apocalyptic end to what they had believed. A day of death. Uh, Our son Truett sent me a video clip this past week of a preacher that he made this point. It was a very short clip, but oh so powerful. So I'm going to use that point at this time. Here's what the man said. There are going to be times in our life where it's going to feel like you are in the midst of being buried. It's going to look like there's no hope, no tomorrow. You're going to see only dirt when you look up. It will seem that there is no answer. It will seem that there is no tomorrow. We might feel that way about our nation today. You might feel that about your life today. You might feel that about your marriage today. You might feel that about your finances today. You might feel that about your job situation, your influence, whatever is going on in your family right now. But I'm going to tell you this. What we think of as a burial, when you're a child of God, planting is what happens, not burial. And what you think is you being buried and the end is only the beginning of a seed that's planted. I'm telling you, when a seed gets planted and it gets covered over, you better watch out. Because pretty soon, a day will pass and you won't see anything. A week may pass and you won't see anything. But what you don't know is there's something happening below. What you don't know is there's something happening beneath that soil. And soon, in God's time, those who believe and trust God will come up out of that burial and sprout forth into life. Amen? So wherever, yeah, amen, wherever you are today and you think you're buried over in your situation, you remember the promise that God's word is more powerful than any burial situation you've got going on in your life today. And it will cause you to spring forth into life. And what's going to happen here in this passage is that Daniel is going to become that seed that's going to burst forth out of this very dark, deep time. You see, captivity is the furnace in which God breaks, shapes, and raises dauntless faith. It's the place. It's where you have to get to. You can't be the seed that springs up if you don't get in the soil and get buried. You can't be the one who gets refined if you don't enter the fire. You can't be the one who's broken and shaped and remolded and used for God's purposes if you don't put yourself in the place to be broken and shaped to begin with. And that's going to happen here for Daniel in our passage. And God will use whatever situation you're in today to be what breaks, reshapes, and raises up faith that you've never even had before. In our land today, we, as the church, are not the head. We've become the tail. We're not experiencing national blessing We're not seeing the glory of God revealed in our nation today in wide-scale measure. 
The church has been silenced. The church has been legislated against. We no longer, as the church, are living holy and separate, but we are living mingled with the world. We look like the world. We seem like the world. We've separated faith into this neat compartment that happens on Sundays for a brief period and it doesn't fit over into the other elements of our life. We've done it ourselves. We don't know the scriptures like we need to. We don't pray like we ought to. We fear the opinion of the crowd. We fear what can happen to us on social media. We fear governmental authorities. We fear what could happen to our finances. We fear what could happen to our comfort. We fear sacrifice. And so today, we have arrived at a place deep underground. And we must not. We must not stay there. The passage continues in verse 3, and it says, Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of the eunuchs. In other words, the king's close quarters, the king's administrative servant team, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Go into Jerusalem and bring out for me the finest. I want the smartest. I want the most well-trained. I want those from noble heritage. I want them brought to me. Historians tell us that there were as many as 75 who were brought in this instance here to the king. He goes on in verse 4 and describes the kind of men he's looking for. He says, I want young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Bring those men in, those young men, 14 to 18 Bring them in, the fine-looking ones, the well-trained ones. Bring them in. We're going to put them in a program. We're going to train them for three years. We'll give them the king's best foods. We'll give them his best wines. And we're going to train them in the ways of our nation, our ways. It was all part of a subtle brainwashing that the king had planned. He would train them in his ways give them his food, give them his drink so that they'd never want to go back to their own food and drink again. Teach them their ways so they would soon forget the old ways. They were very impressionable at a very vulnerable time in their life. This was the moment. Remove them from their parents. Remove them from their culture. Take away their heritage. Isolate them. Train them in the ways of the Chaldeans. Feed them properly. Brainwash them. Make them feel obligated to have to walk in our ways because we've provided so much for them in three years of training, and they will be mine, the king must have thought. Verse 6 tells us about four of the 75. It says, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Young men who had grown up in faith-filled homes. Young men who had come from a heritage of belief. Young men who had been trained. Young men who were skilled. Young men who were healthy. They were vibrant. They were the future of the nation. They're brought in and taken captive and brought to the king. What's fascinating is when you look behind the scenes at what each of these names meant. They weren't just names given to them because they were cute or because they were popular on social media at the time. When they were given a name, their name had purpose. It had significance. It spoke of where the parents had come from and what their parents looked forward to. To have a child was to have a future and to have a hope. To have a child was an indicator of faith of a tomorrow. To have a child was to have a promise that God was going to work. And so you named your child something that would give you hope for tomorrow and give them destiny for all that God had for them. So Daniel was given the name Daniel because his parents said, I want to have a son. His name shall be Daniel, which means God is my judge. Mm. Whenever Daniel heard his name, he didn't hear Daniel. He heard, God is my judge. God will protect me. God will rule over me. God has orchestrated my life. God will defend me. you imagine that? That's what you heard every day. You didn't hear, Daniel. You heard, God is my judge. Come on, it's time for dinner. That's what he knew. He heard Daniel, but he knew that's what it meant. You, you immediately associated it. Hananiah meant God has been gracious. I'd love to know the stories that led up to that. That brought them to the place where a parent would say, I want to name our son. God has been gracious. I don't know what struggles they went through. I don't know what led to that. But in faith, they named their son. God has been gracious. And that had to have captured Hananiah's life as he thought about the future. He thought about who he was. He thought about his parents. He thought about what was ahead. God has been gracious. Mishael meant, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? No one greater. That was his name. Azariah meant, God has helped me. These parents all named their sons with faith, with purpose. Yet here they are captured. Here they are taken to another land. Here they are removed from their families. Here they are removed from their culture. Here they are removed from all influence of faith. And they are left with themselves and what God has for them. They're left with the memory of their name, the memory of their short life, and now having to face something they never anticipated. Nebuchadnezzar is cruel. Nebuchadnezzar is heartless. So what he does as part of his brainwashing scheme is not only train them for three years, feed them the king's food and wine, but he takes on one more task. Verse 7. To them, these four, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. 
we will rename them. We will give them new identities. Now, when we call them, when it's time for a meal, when it's time for pay, when it's time to enjoy the king's delicacies, now you will hear something different because we will rename everything about you. Our process is to brainwash you into our culture. So Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge, you'll now have a new name, Daniel. It's Belteshazzar. And that name means protect your king. Now, Daniel, instead of you seeing God as your judge, you will see your king. And it's your role now to protect him. This is who you are. We will never again call you Daniel. You are Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, whose name meant God has been gracious, we will rename you. Your name is now Shadrach, which means I fear the gods. Instead of seeing God, the one true God, as being gracious, your name now means fear all the gods. Fear them, for they are angry and against you. The king was slowly erasing their past and rewriting it with a new script. Michel, whose name meant, who is like God? You shall have a new name, Meshach. It means, I am despised by God. Can you imagine hearing that every time you were called? I am despised by God. They rewrote his script. They rewrote his future. They rewrote his identity. You are no longer what you used to be. Azariah, whose name meant God has helped me. Your name shall now be Abednego, which means you are servant of Nebo, the God of all vegetation. This is now your new title. God has not helped you. You will now help the gods. This is a powerful tactic of the world. It's a subtle tactic of the enemy to rename you. To take you who have become a believer in Jesus Christ, who have bore the name redeemed, saved, child of God, beloved, righteous, accepted, holy. The enemy wants you to do anything but remember your name. If he can get you to the place where you will stop calling yourself redeemed and call yourself loser, Oh, he has won. If he can get you to stop referring to yourself as forgiven and call yourself failure, oh, he has won. If he can get you to stop calling yourself child of God and you call yourself child of rebellion, he has won in that moment because you will do based on what you believe you are. This king knew it, and the evil one knows it today.
he is looking to rename you. And he's whispering craftily in your ear every day, you can't follow Christ. You don't deserve that. Who do you think you are? You'll never amount to anything. He is whispering. He's using your past. He's using your failures. He's calling you to be fearful. He's calling you to be so wrapped up in your sin that the last thing that you think about is who you are before God. The enemy will use captivity to make you rename your identity, your resolve, and your purpose. Our land is in the condition it is today, not because of the world. Our land is in the condition it is today because the church has stopped naming the name of Christ upon its heart. We've stopped boldly wearing the name of church. We've relegated ourselves to lesser titles. We've relegated ourselves to who we are in the workplace, who we are in our schools, who we are in our community, who we are on social media. We're more careful about the titles we bear there than the name of Jesus Christ upon our life. And the enemy is prevailing today. It's part of the brainwashing technique that the enemy has used. Our story continues in verse 8. This is where, praise God, the story takes a turn. It's been dark up to this point. It's been desperate up to this point. There's been a lot of dirt covering over the situation at this point. It's been desperate. It's been hopeless. But in verse 8, it begins with the words, But Daniel, but Daniel, one young man decided to go against all that was being thrust at them, decided to say, hold up, stop, wait a minute. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel said, I realize what's being offered to me here. Promotion beyond belief. Position beyond what anybody could ever want in this world. To be at the king's side. To enjoy the king's delicacies. To enjoy the king's drink. To enjoy all that the king has. And I cannot do it. He purposed deep in his heart, it says, that he would not defile himself, that he would not allow compromise to change who he was. 
Daniel, couldn't you just have gone ahead and just ate the food and not said anything? Couldn't you just gone ahead and drunk the wine and not said anything? Couldn't you just go along with it, Daniel, and just keep your faith all to yourself? No, there is no faith if you're keeping it to yourself. You see, Daniel was working off of something here. This wasn't just some whim. I think I'm not gonna, I think I'm gonna choose not to eat that food and just see what happens. No, Daniel was working from a place here. You see, Daniel knew God's word. Daniel knew the law. And what the king was offering, number one, was food that was not on God's law list. Do you know there's foods in the Old Testament law that the believers in that day were told they could not eat? If we had an old covenant, Old Testament believer with us today, that would be weird to start with, if he was here and you said afterwards, hey, you want to go down and get a pepperoni pizza afterwards? He'd say, uh-uh. I can't eat that. It's not re- allowed in the law. You couldn't eat pork. It was on God's unclean list in the Old Testament. There was a whole list of ways you were required to live. It was, there was a whole list of laws of what you could eat, how you could dress, how you were to interact with others, days that were holy, a whole calendar set apart for God's people so that they would not look like the world, so that they would be set apart, so that they could know we belong to the Lord. So Daniel knew there was food on that platter. There were probably pork chops, pepperoni pizza. There might have been some catfish and some lobster, and that wasn't on the list either. If you were, if you were an old, old covenant believer, you weren't eating that stuff. It wasn't just a dietary plan. It wasn't just the latest juice cleanse. It was a real deal. To eat those was to be a sin right in the face of God. And Daniel said, I cannot do that. I cannot go against what my God has said. But there was a second reason that Daniel couldn't do it. Because he knew all that food and all that drink had been offered to the idols. It was part of the king's worship. Everything they ate, everything they drink was offered to these false gods, these 50 gods, this Marduk, the one of the 50, the one that had the 50 within him. And Daniel said, I I cannot eat what has been offered to idols. I cannot participate in the worship of other gods. Our God is one, and I must worship him only. So when this verse says, Daniel purposed in his heart, this is a supreme act of faith. I cannot. I cannot do that. I cannot compromise. Daniel, just go along with it, dude. Do you not realize the promotion that's yours if you just go along with it? Just, just eat it, Daniel, and we'll talk about all that stuff when we get alone. Daniel says, I cannot do it. I will not do it. I will not defile myself. To eat the king's food 
and drink would defile him, would poison him. His faith, his single-hearted devotion to God alone. I must stay clean. I must stay focused. I will not let even the smallest, smallest element come in and it be a place of compromise for me. Just take one bite, Daniel. I cannot. Daniel purposed in his heart. What's fascinating to me is you don't read in this passage that 75 young men purposed in their hearts, therefore Daniel went along with it. Doesn't say that. The passage doesn't say three of Daniel's friends all agreed along with him that they would not defile themselves. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the others did and then Daniel did. The way it's worded, no one else said a word. And all of a sudden, out of the emptiness, Daniel spoke up and says, I cannot do this. I will not defile myself. I will not allow compromise, even the smallest element, to taint my single-hearted devotion to God. One, one young man stood against the odds. One young man stood up when no one else did. One young man stood up not knowing if anyone else would. One young man stood up against all that was being offered him, and one young man stood up against all that it could cost him. And he purposed in his heart. And because one was willing, we will later in our series read about three young men who will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Because one did, we'll read later about a king who will find the courage to repent of his sin. Because one man did, we'll read about four generations of kings who will see the glory of God. And because of one young man's stance, we will be reading about it 2,600 years later today, and God will use it to spark our hearts to a place of devotion to Christ. Amen. Amen. Ooh. One, one young man who chose to have faith that was courageous and bold and dauntless. It's what's needed today. This is not our time of being buried. This is our time for the seed to spring up. This is not our time to get lost in the fiery furnace, but to see Christ in the midst of it and stand for him. This is not our time to walk away, to hide, to fear. A nation is waiting for one to stand. Husbands, your wife is waiting for you to stand. Church, we're waiting for us to stand in this culture and in this day to be dauntless. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to be bold, then it begins here. And it begins with this one single truth. Dauntless faith begins 
with a relentless commitment to live undefiled. That's where it starts. Well, there's a lot ahead in this, in this book. There's some amazing, miraculous things that God is going to do. And they start because of this moment. Because Daniel purposed in his heart. I will not. I will not take part in what the world offers. I will not buy into what they're selling. I will not attempt to mix it with who I am. I will live single-hearted, boldly, dauntless in my faith. 2 Corinthians 7 says, having these promises, referring to us now who walk with Christ, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What a day in which we live. What a time. What a time is now needed for men and women, students, children, to say, I'm done with all that stuff out there. I'm tired of it. It hasn't helped me it's hurt me. And the call of Christ is clear in my head. And now I will intentionally, relentlessly live undefiled. Now, today what that means, if we're going to begin this journey together, it means that every one of us have to begin with this in our heart, to purpose in our heart, God, I have mixed my life with all that's out there but today no more I repent I'm done with it I'm through with it today I commit to you God I will live undefiled I won't let what the world sells be my product anymore I won't let their attitudes I won't let their practices be part of my life it's time for single-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ. This is where we begin today. Dauntless, regardless. God, I will be bold, courageous, sold out, dauntless, regardless. Regardless of what's out there. Regardless of what's promised to me. Regardless of what it'll cost me. If it means turning off the TV, if it means shutting down the computer, if it means getting rid of the computer, if it means changing my schedule, if it means changing my friends, if it means changing where I go, what I do, if it means putting a check up in my spirit for what I'm going to allow into my heart and my attitudes anymore, I'm in. I'm there. This is what I now do. I hear my God calling me, and I will live bold and courageous, dauntless before him. This is where it begins. Would you bow your heads with me? God is speaking today. His word is alive. His spirit is here. And today, he is calling 
each of us. He's calling us to a place of greater surrender than we've ever had before, of greater repentance than we've ever demonstrated before, of greater commitment to righteousness than perhaps you've ever had before. And today God is pointing out some areas in your life that you need to remove, that you need to get rid of, that you need to change because there's no way he can work when you live defiled. So today, could you pray this prayer? Dear God, I hear you speaking to me today. Thank you that you have provided your son as payment for my sin. That no matter what I've done in the past, I now can know forgiveness because of what he did. And at the same time, because of what he did, I can now walk in truth. And today, God, I commit to do that. I commit to remove the things from my life that are defiling me. I commit to a new set of ways, a new set of attitudes, a new set of friends, a new direction, because I want to see you glorified. I want to see my family changed. I want to see my marriage restored. I want to see my nation brought to a place of revival. And it begins right here with me. So God, as your people, we come to repent. We come to commit. We come to walk undefiled before you. We do so not by our strength, not by our might, but only by the power of Jesus Christ within us. And it's in his holy, powerful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We really hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. I hope it has inspired you to lift him up and live him out. If you'd like to know more about Vertical Church, check us out online at verticalchurchovilla.com. We'll see you next time.